0: Ladies and gentlemen, from wherever you might be listening in right now, my name is David Song, and I would like to officially welcome everyone to the first official episode of the Draft Board Podcast. Now, if you've gotten this far, you're probably well aware of the fact that this is a sports podcast, and it is a sports podcast started by myself and my good friend Tyson Workington. We're two Calgarians, very different people... You know, he's 6'4", I'm 5'3", you know, who's counting? Who's keeping score? (laughs) But one thing that really unites us is that we both love sports, and this is why we wanted to start this podcast, to talk about football, basketball, hockey, and perhaps even other sports in the future in a way that our listeners will find interesting. And one of our goals, Tyson, is to try to come at these subjects in ways that you might not find on your typical ESPN headlines isn't that right
1: yeah absolutely I love the conversation aspect where we can go so much deeper you know like popular uh, ESPN networks or Fox News or Sports Center, it's all about the hot take you know uh, this player is garbage or this player is the next goat or you know anything that is remotely interesting? Kyle Lowry scored zero points in a playoff game. Is he done? Is he done? Right? They want to get that clickbait, and it's not really educational or informative. At Colin Calherd, <laughs> at Max Kellerman, at Skip Bayless. And it's not it's not entertainment at all. You know, like to some extent, this is uh, a fun thing. We think sports are fun. I, I believe you would also agree of with us, right? Of course. So if sports should be fun, then talking about it should be fun. And that's a huge part of this podcast. Absolutely. But before we
0: get started, why don't we give everyone a chance to get to know us a little bit for those that... Don't already. Tyson, why don't you go first? Tell, tell the people about yourself.
1: Sure. I am uh, 6'4 and I love food. You do love food. <laughs> I do love food. It's so good. Your girlfriend would agree with that. Uh, she would. She really would. Um, yeah, so I am a big Toronto Maple Leafs fan. I have been. Questionable. T- <laughs> I've been through the pain, man. Oh, yeah. I've been through the pain. The years of Beza Toscala. And, uh, oh, man, the James Reimer-Ben Scribbins duo. Remember when Ben Scribbins was? And bullied?
0: Dion Phaneuf trying his best to be a number one <gasps> oh, defenseman in the
1: NHL. The seven-year, $7 million contract. Mm-hmm. The pain, I, I still have PTSD nightmares yeah. sometimes, but no, I'm kidding. So I'm a big Toronto Maple Leafs fan. I love sports. I'm a Green Bay Packers fan for football. Uh, I follow the CFL. I follow the uh, a little bit of the basketball side of things as well. I'm a Raptors fan. Always gotta appreciate Canada's team. We the North, mm-hmm. even though they're currently in Tampa right now. We the South. We the South. So, yeah, I'm. Uh, maybe maybe people think that I'm a little bit too much on the Toronto side because I lived there for a little bit. But you know what? They're my teams, and I love them, and they're they're gonna be with me till I die. And you also played some goalie, right? I sure did. Yeah, I was. Uh, playing Timbits hockey when I was six years old. Uh, I fell in love with the sport of hockey and it's been something that has been with me for the rest of my life. I love playing sports of all kind but hockey's always been my first love. I play hockey. I have played hockey and I'm currently on an intramural team for my university. Uh, I'm currently in university studying a Bachelor of Theology but uh, you know, hopefully eventually maybe going into ministry one day but we'll see where that goes and see what life happens but right now I'm just really mm-hmm. interested in talking sports with you David. Right, and
0: you know, I am just as excited to be here with you obviously, and I also think that while our intention is obviously not to preach at anyone on this podcast, it is cool that faith is something that you and I have in common as well and it is frankly if for those of you that don't know us, it is a reason why we want this podcast to be focused on productive and entertaining discussion, not simply ripping on people or saying
1: things to be incendiary, isn't that right? Absolutely, you know that type of background that we have together really influences our lives and how we live, and I think that that comes out in sports as well, you know, and and how we view things and how we look at media and how we look at narratives. I think we're gonna provide something that is a little bit different than mainstream media or even some of the other podcasts because we're gonna come at it with a different perspective than a lot of other people do. That maybe is a little bit more graceful at times and maybe is a little bit of a different take or kind of outside the box thinking that I think we can provide absolutely. Yeah, so thanks for that and if you
0: will if you're okay with it I <laughs> will uh, it's my turn to tell the people a bit about absolutely. myself now. Absolutely.
1: David, please tell us who you are and include your entire life story since you were born. Right. Well, my social security number is no I'm just kidding. <laughs> but no, uh
0: Obviously, this is an audio format. Uh, you can't see me right now, but yeah, I'm five foot three. I am Chinese, but I am proudly, proudly Canadian on the inside. And mm-hmm. I am also an American as well, having been born in Brooklyn, New York. We'll forgive them. Yes. Thank you for your grace. But, you know, sports for me is something that I have a unique relationship with. Because unlike you, I didn't play goalie. I didn't play any sport. I was never athletic. Mm-hmm. But... After watching Team Canada win Olympic gold on home soil in 2010, Mm. as Jerome McGinley, the hometown superstar, sets up Sidney Crosby for that goal in overtime, you know that was something that really did change the trajectory of my life, Mm. and that is why after going through a law and society degree in undergrad i realized listen i don't i didn't really ever want to be a lawyer my dad's a lawyer but no i don't ever want to be a lawyer i want to be a sports journalist because that is something that i'm passionate about and it is something that i can use my strengths of writing and talking to people and learning more about sports some it's a way that i can use that to you know be of service in some way as well as to do something that i enjoy and so For those of you that don't know, I'm currently part of IUPUI's Sports Capital Journalism program. Shout out to Professor Malcolm Moran and all the other great people in that program. I'd be admiss if I didn't say go Jaguars, at least. Not the Jacksonville Jaguars, because I have nothing to do with them, but the IUPUI Jaguars. And if you're wondering what IUPUI stands for, wait till the end of the episode, because we're not there yet. (laughs) We're not there yet. We're not there yet. It's in Indianapolis. That's all you need to know. Exactly. I am a bandwagon Colts fan. I will say that because they have no built-in rivalry with the Packers, which is also the NFL team that I picked. So you know what? Not a bad place to be. Not a bad sports city at all. And Calgary, of course, from where we are at right now. I've lived here for 15, 16-odd years. You've lived here for upwards of a decade as well. Almost a decade. We love the Stampeders. I love the Flames more than you do, but that's okay. And they're definitely my team. And My version of pain is watching Jerome McGinley retire without winning a Stanley Cup. And I have to tell myself two Olympic golds and a Hall of Fame resume
1: nonetheless. Absolutely, no doubt. And it's so good to hear how, you know, the Olympic story and Canada winning gold in Vancouver really impacted your life. And I think that that's something that people who don't get sports or don't really like sports don't really understand is how much sport can impact a person. Whether it's at the Olympic level or you're playing it as a kid, uh, the impact of sports can be so drastic and so huge in such a positive way as well. And I think that that's something that's really cool that we can dig into more on the podcast. Absolutely. I
0: think that the one thing that I'll say if there are any non-sports fans tuning in and they might be asking, listen, why is sports such a big deal? Well, I'd ask you why Why is it a big deal whether Tony Stark lives or dies, right? right? Like, why is it a big deal whether your favorite celebrity gets married to so-and-so or writes whatever book? You know, why is it a big deal that Harry Potter ends up with Ginny Weasley instead of Hermione Granger, right? Really, the truth is sports is an emotional passion and it's an outlet, just like fiction is, just like movies just like any other hobby dnd video games whatever i think that hopefully for those of y'all listening one thing that you will take away is that even if you may not care about sport or you may care about it in a different way we care about sport and this is the main reason why we decide to start this podcast is to try to share our passion and our insights with the general public and you know, so without further ado, Tyson, we've been talking about how our faith impacts, has impacted our lives and our outlook on everything, including sports, and that is why, folks, we will begin every episode of ours with a feel-good sports news nugget. And for today, we are going to talk about Carson Wentz, yes, but obviously how Carson Wentz's career has turned out over the past year is not a feel-good nugget. No. No. Well, what is a feel-good nugget is what he did to surprise a young 13-year-old, excuse me, 13-year-old Eagles superfan named Giovanni Hamilton. Now, Tyson, this young man has been through a lot. He has a very rare medical condition called Schwartz-Jampel syndrome. I may not be pronouncing that correctly, but, wow, you know, it is apparently, it's a syndrome but that involves some dwarfism and muscular dystrophy as well, and... While we are not medical experts, obviously, we can tell you that he's undergone 15 surgeries in yeah, his life.
1: that's a lot. That's, yeah. that's really tough to go through, especially for a, a 13-year-old kid. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But,
0: you know, Carson Wentz and his wife and his child decided to surprise young Giovanni, who, by the way, is known on Twitter as Giovanni the Philly Sports Podcaster, at Giovanni. And how they did that was, so young Giovanni was on a Zoom call with a couple of gentlemen from the audience of one foundation, which I believe is Carson Wentz's own foundation, and Carson and his wife decided to just pop on and surprise the young man and definitely moved
1: him visibly. Isn't that right? Yeah, you can definitely see it by watching the video that he absolutely loves Carson Wentz. It's his favorite player. You know, imagine... Your childhood idol, Jerome McGinley, popping, popping in and just coming by, giving you a hug or giving you a high five and seeing you, and and you get to talk to him and, and hang out with him, and that's something that Carson Wentz got to do for this young kid who's clearly having a really tough time in in his life with his medical condition, and and it's really good to see Carson Wentz uh, kind of give back to the community a little bit and to see. Players of a sport of an NFL organization being able to go out and interact with the community in a selfless way, and you know that's something that's so special and so good because these athletes are not just athletes; they are looked at a little bit differently than the rest of the world is. And uh, you know we we look at athletes and we see oh this person can throw a ball really far or can run really fast. But there's something else to it that we look up to them. There are qualities that we want to have in that person in our own lives. So there's something there that is really good to see Carson Wentz going out and taking time out of his day with him and his family to go and talk to this kid who was having a hard time. And, yeah, it was really good and really special for Carson Wentz to kind of give back to the community in that way and, and be involved in an organization that really supports kids. For sure. And he's certainly known for doing that. And obviously there
0: are going to be some of you out there who may feel more cynically about the idea of athletes being used as role models. And I don't want to harp on that point too much. But what I believe is that, you know, for better or worse, athletes are role models. It's not really something you can debate in practice because it just happens. And so because that is the case, I believe that You know, it's a privilege, and it is a responsibility for every athlete to try to be a role model in in ways that he or she is passionate about. And Carson Wentz, I think, has certainly done that in Philadelphia. And you know, all records indicate that he is an upstanding young man. But Having said that, as we all know, in professional sports, on-field production matters as well, and that is unfortunately where we have to transition to our first official topic of Mm -hmm. the day, which is Carson Wentz being traded from Philadelphia to the Indianapolis Colts. Now, for those of you that don't follow football, you may think to yourself, okay, it's just a trade. Trades happen all the time, right? Well, sure, they do, but... Unfortunately for the Eagles, it's not every day that you have to take a $33.8 million cap hit mm-hmm. to trade a player that you just less than two years ago viewed as your franchise quarterback. And so the fact that, and again, for non, non again, to say this again in non-sports lingo, they're paying $33.8 million in effect to get Wentz out of their team so that they can get out of the rest of his contract as well, which is four more years, nearly $100 million. Tyson, why did Philly decide to move on from him?
1: Ultimately, it's because Carson Wentz wasn't good enough. That's kind of the end of the day how this shaped out to be. Now, you can make a lot of arguments on why he wasn't good enough, and we can highlight those and talk about that. But at the end of the day, Carson Wentz was not good enough on the field, and off the field to be the Philadelphia Eagles franchise quarterback anymore. And the Eagles decided that it was time to start over. And, you know, kind of when you're going through a bad breakup with a messy breakup, uh, no price is too much to get out. You know, you're unhappy, you're upset with the person, you're angry, get out of the relationship at all costs. And that's basically what this was. Unfortunately for the Eagles, it was the highest dead money cap hit that they've ever had to take for a player to break up with. But that's really what it was, is that Carson Wentz was not working in Philadelphia. The management, the coaches, Carson, they were not on the same page at all. Uh, Part of that was probably into uh, the Eagles drafting a new quarterback. Who could potentially replace him, so that probably didn't make Carson Wentz very happy in that moment in time. So there are a variety of reasons why this didn't work out, but ultimately at the end of the day, it's because Carson Wentz wasn't good enough to continue playing as a starting quarterback for the Eagles. Absolutely.
0: Now, again, for some context, the reason why pardon me, the reason why the Eagles did at one point believe he was their future was of course his sophomore season in 2017 where he soared to a franchise record 33 touchdowns seven interceptions with a 123.7 quarterback rating on third down and 116 in the red zone that last 20 yards of the field now again if you don't follow football Passer rating is a metric that is mathematically calculated in a way that I don't understand. But what's relevant here is that the perfect passer rating is 158.3. And so for Wentz to go out and throw 33 touchdowns and have a 123.7 passer rating on uh, the ever-crucial
1: third down, Mm -hmm. that is elite, certainly for sure. Absolutely, especially when you consider the passer rating for league average is kind of at around 80-90. So when you can go well and above 80-90 on the key points on the field and the key downs, that's especially important for any type of football uh, program, football team, and if you can get good production on those players, like, you're having tons of success.
0: Right, and then unfortunately success dried up for Wentz and the Eagles because, again, he was very injury prone. He's... He's torn an ACL. He's had a severe back injury that bothered him in 2018. In 2019, he still managed 27 touchdowns and seven interceptions with a 93.1 quarterback rating. So it's not as if he fell off the cliff right away. But as we know, Tyson, the main reason why the Eagles eventually moved on from him was last year. What did Carson Wentz do last year? 16 touchdowns, 15 interceptions, through 12 games at completing 57.4% of his passes. Now, obviously, this is not the three-point shot in basketball. As a starting quarterback, you need to be hitting at a fair bit higher than 57.4%. His 15, sorry, interceptions, his 15 interceptions led the league. The 50 sacks he absorbed led the league. And this was only through 12 out of 16 games second round pick Jalen Hurts played the last four and these were ultimately just metrics that when you combine it with his injury history it was a very tough proposition and ultimately the Philadelphia Eagles traded Wentz they also fired former head coach Doug Peterson who has gone on record saying that he has been married in effect to Wentz so your relationship analogy a few minutes ago certainly was apt in that
1: in that situation Tyson. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Carson Wentz had a really, really tough time this year holding on to the football. 12, uh, 12 games, 15 interceptions, which was tied for the league lead with Drew Locke. And I believe Drew Locke played more games. So that's not a good stat. And he also fumbled the ball, I think it was four times he fumbled the ball And that's also not good. As a quarterback, you need to be able to control and hold on to the ball at minimum. And then you can start maybe making some plays. But if you're continuously turning the ball over, that's not going to be a recipe for success for anybody. And Carson Wentz needs to own some of that for sure. But it's also true that he didn't get a lot of help. That, That offensive line was hurt a lot this year. So the offensive line definitely didn't help Carson Wentz at all. 50 sacks in 12 games, that's on pace for about 66, 67 sacks in a year, which is around the most. Like He was kind of in that range for the most sacked quarterback in a season per 16 games if he was to finish the season, which eventually he got replaced, so he did not. So what we're looking at and what we're talking about here is is he got sacked a lot. He was running for his life a lot. And ultimately he turned the ball over a lot.
0: He did. And that of course is you know, that of course is not a recipe for success, like you said. But before we move on, I just want to point out that for those again unfamiliar with the Eagles, they had seven offensive starters, five defensive starters and 10 other key players, part-time starters, or major depth guys missed games last year. And unfortunately, two of those guys were Brandon Brooks and Lane Johnson, two Pro Bowl offensive linemen who surely could have done something more to protect Wentz and perhaps even save him from himself. But nonetheless, the past is in the past. And on February 18th, which was a couple of weeks ago, Carson Wentz made his departure from Philadelphia. He was traded to the Indianapolis Colts, so my second city, essentially. <laughs> and what the Colts gave up in return was a 2021 third-rounder and a 2022 conditional second-rounder that will become a first-round pick in 2022 under two conditions. Either Wentz plays 75% of the snaps or 70%, but the Colts make the playoffs. And now, given the fact that the Colts have made the playoffs each of the last two seasons— seems fairly likely that they may hit this mark. Of course, Indianapolis will absorb the four years and nearly a hundred million dollars of Wentz's contract also to take him on, but they have the cap space to do it. And one thing that is good about this move for Wentz is he gets to reunite with Frank Reich. Now, who is Frank Reich, you might ask. He was the Eagles offensive coordinator during the 2017 season where Wentz had his career defining 33 touchdown season and the Philadelphia Eagles later won the Super Bowl with Nick Foles at backup. Tyson, mm-hmm. do you think this would be potentially a good sign for
1: Wentz? This is the best case scenario. I don't think there's any place that Carson Wentz could have gone to that would have been better for him to go to. Really uh looking at the options, if you were to go to any other team, he would have to relearn the playbook, relearn the system get on the same page with the head coach, build relationships with the coach. And he doesn't have to do that really at all with Frank Reich because they know each other so well, and they've worked with each other, and they know how to win with each other. Really, this is the best-case scenario for Carson Wentz. If he's going to revive his career, so to speak, and turn his career around, it'll be in Indianapolis with Frank Reich because the best way that he can possibly regain his success is to go back to the foundations that he had success with in the first place. Absolutely. And, you know, there's
0: also several other reasons. We're going to talk about three other key reasons why Indianapolis might be a very good place for Carson Wentz to rediscover himself. First and foremost, the offensive line. Just a few minutes ago, we were talking about those 50 sacks that Carson Wentz took in a mere 12 games now you might be wondering how good is indy's offensive line well it was ranked seventh out of 32 in the nfl by pro football focus last year and you want to know what tyson that was a down year for them this is a top five offensive line mm-hmm. when fully healthy and playing with their potential they had some late season injuries on the outside at offensive tackle they had some in- inconsistent play rather from their interior linemen by their high standards Nonetheless, though, this is a line that is anchored by All Pros Quentin Smith. Quentin Smith, my goodness. Quentin Nelson. I almost uh, I was reading ahead on my notes a little bit, clearly, but <laughs> Quentin Nelson, who frankly is the best interior guard in football, or arguably the one of the best interior linemen in football. For sure, one of the best. Ryan Kelly, also an All Pro caliber player, and Braden Smith, one of those guys who missed some time with injury, but he's a former Pro Football Writers Association all-rookie selection. Mm -hmm. So a massively powerful offensive line that is skilled in both run blocking and pass blocking. And you know what? This is really something that if I'm Carson Wentz,
1: I imagine I would feel very happy to to be going here. Absolutely. You know, we look at around the NFL, and the thing that makes... NFL quarterbacks the most upset is not about not having a running game, not about having enough weapons to throw to, but getting chased and getting hit and getting sacked. That is the number one most uh, frustrating thing for a quarterback. You know, Russell Wilson is frustrated about that. He maybe wants out of Seattle for that reason. He was sacked 52 times last season. The only quarterback who was sacked more than Wentz. He did play more games though. So when we look at the offensive line situation. Realistically, the Indianapolis Colts have spent many draft picks on on an offensive line, and they have one of the best in the NFL, easily by far. So with Carson Wentz going to a situation with the same playbook, the same offensive coordinator who's now a head coach that he had success with, and an offensive line that can protect him if they were to stay healthy... This is something that can provide any quarterback to a good season. For sure.
0: Now, having said that, we also have to acknowledge Wentz's bad habits that might actually make it harder on even a skilled mm-hmm. offensive line to protect him. Because according to next gen stats, Carson Wentz averaged 2.91 seconds to throw last season, which is 31st out of 35 qualifying starting quarterbacks. Now, again, to the football newcomer, 2.91 seconds may not seem like a long time at all, but first of all, we need, to, we need to realize that that's an average. And there was a lot of times where he held the ball for four or five seconds or more. And you and I both know if you're holding the ball for one steamboat, two steamboats, three steamboats, four steamboats, at that point in time, if the pass rush is not in your face... It is just as much a failure on their part as a win by the offensive line so Wentz had a very bad habit of holding on to the ball longer than he should have which was a key reason sometimes why his
1: protection broke down absolutely you know there is one particular play that recalls to mind where Carson Wentz he was in the pocket it was Monday night football and he held on to the ball And he was looking down the field and he was trying to hit that home run. He was trying to hit that touchdown. And it wasn't there. So instead of hitting one of the shorter receivers, taking off and running and getting a few yards, or even throwing an incompletion, he tried to extend the play. He ran around. He went outside the pocket. And he tried to look down the field again to take that big play for a big gain or even a touchdown. And it wasn't there. And the defensive lineman chased him down and Carson Wentz fumbled the ball. And this is one of the biggest problems that is in Carson Wentz's game, is that he takes unnecessary risks that he can't athletically do anymore because of his Mm -hmm. injuries.
0: And one could argue that even his play style back then, because even in 2017, he did improvise a lot. That 123.7 passer rating on third down, it's because he was trying to play hero ball on third down and was able to pull it off with consistency that year but in any case though obviously with that back injury with that knee injury his quick twitch is just not there the way that it used to be which re- resulted in some of these very failed attempts at essentially playing more hero ball mm-hmm. we it, it also is worth noting that according to next gen stats he had a quick pass rate of just 38.2% which is 33rd amongst 35 quarterbacks and it basically means that he got the ball out in under Two and a half seconds, only 38.2% of the time. And frankly, that's going to put any stress on any offense. You can pick the best five offensive linemen in history, but if your quarterback is consistently holding onto the ball like that, it's just going to make their job a little bit harder. It also makes their job harder because once likes to scramble outside the pocket, and as anyone who watches or plays football knows, as an offensive lineman, you can no longer protect your quarterback
1: and set the right angle if he takes off. Absolutely. It's very difficult for offensive linemen to block for a scrambling quarterback without knowing where the quarterback is going to go. So it that means that the quarterback and the offensive lineman are going to have to get on the same page with uh, whether or not Carson Wentz likes to roll out to one side or another. And what happens when you know, the defensive lineman takes a particular angle or not. That's going to have to be learned in Indianapolis with his new team, and that's going to be part of hopefully training camp Mm in preseason. But, yeah, like getting the ball out in, you know, 38.2% of the time in under two seconds, that's not good enough. Like, uh, Tom Brady made a living in New England.
0: I was hoping you were going to say that. He
1: made a living in New England by... Taking the ball in second after holding the ball, it was out of his hands and into a running back on the flat or to Julian Edelman on a little quick little route. Mm-hmm. And Brady had no ego. Like yeah. if he had to throw the ball three yards down the field fifty times a game, he'd do it if they'd win the game that way. Yeah, death by a thousand cuts is essentially how the New England Patriots won three of their six Super Bowls with Tom Brady. And it is incredibly annoying for a defense. It is incredibly boring to watch for a fan, but it works. Absolutely. And regardless of whether or not the fans like it or the offense likes it or the players enjoy that style, you have to emulate at least some of it. Exactly. Into your offense and into your game. You can't be trying to throw the ball 30 yards down the field, three plays in a row. Absolutely. So to conclude
0: this particular point, Obviously, Indy's offensive line will be a major asset to Wentz, but at the same time, it does seem like he's going to have to improve some of his bad habits and learn to take the short gains and learn to get the ball out of his hands much faster in order to give himself and the team the best chance at success. Now, offensively, Indianapolis does, well, first of all, they have more playmakers than Philly did in that injury-decimated season. They've got a running game. They've got Jonathan Taylor, a rookie running back, who was named to the 2020 All-Rookie Team, uh, Pro Football Writers Association All-Rookie Team, after rushing for 1,169 yards and 11 touchdowns, which in layman's terms is pretty darn good. Mm -hmm. And you've also got a second dragon out of the backfield named Naheem Hines, who is much more of a receiving back, but he is a very capable air threat out of the backfield with 482 yards, four scores, through the air. So first of all, we've got a running game for Wentz that should be able to open things up for him, keep the defense honest, so that when Wentz does drop back to pass, he could find someone like Michael Pittman Jr., who had 500 about 503 yards in his rookie year last year, and he is really a candidate that might take a large step forward as a second-year receiver this year. Then you've got, of course, T.Y. Hilton, the speedster, the four-time pro bowler, who obviously he still got talent despite dealing with injuries his last two seasons. So
1: at least on paper, Carson's got weapons to play with. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the Indianapolis Colts made the playoffs, in my opinion, despite their quarterback play. No offense to Phillip Rivers or Jacoby Brissett when he was playing for the Colts, kind of subpar quarterback play. Philip Rivers does not have the arm to throw the ball many times down no. the field. It's he, He's a very uh, unique passer in that way. He's that very, very strange sidearm delivery. Very weird, but it's accurate, and he could still get the ball there enough times. But even still, you could tell that Phillip Rivers was limited, and that offense was limited by the quarterback play. So, the... Colts have a very interesting dynamic with their skill positions because they've drafted well with uh, Taylor and Hines and Pittman Jr. And they also have T.Y. Hilton who uh, could come back depending on the salary cap and everything that's going on in in the organization right now. But yeah, it's looking like there's a lot of tools for Carson Wentz have success with in, in Indianapolis.
0: And I would just like to say that, you know, the fact that Jonathan Taylor rushed for 1169 9 and 11 touchdowns is another testament to that big offensive line mm. and how they can absolutely dominate the line of scrimmage all game, every game. Absolutely. Now, you also alluded to the fact that one could argue Indianapolis made the playoffs in spite of their quarterback play the last couple of years. And the reason for that is obviously their defense, the thing we're going to talk about next. They allowed the eighth-fewest total yards per game, 332.1. They also allowed the tenth-fewest points per game, 22.6 points per game, over the course of last season. These numbers are according to sportsnot.com. And, of course, they've got plenty of solid-to-elite starters on that defense. We'll start, of course, with the high-end, DeForest Buckner a top five defensive tackle no matter how you slice it. Darius Leonard, an excellent run and chase pursuit linebacker who has shown repeatedly that he's one, he's one of the best second round picks that Indy ever made, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. You've got guys like Rakyasin, a capable starting corner, Xavier Rose, who resurrected his career in Indianapolis essentially last year. The veteran Justin Houston, a former 22 and a half sack artist, and, of course, the talented but oft-injured Malik Hooker on that defense as well. So, at least on paper, there is definitely reason to be optimistic on that front.
1: Yeah, if your goal is to win a Super Bowl, you got to have a top 10 defense. It's almost a given nowadays. You need to have a good defense that can rush the passer and stop the run, at least on some consistent level. And it looks like the Colts have that. They've drafted a lot of good players, and they have some veterans on that team. They can really play well, and uh, they definitely have the tools to have success on defense. It's definitely been one of their strengths as of recently. So, I definitely think that that's a positive thing going forward for the Colts. Uh, This season for the Colts hinges on whether the defense can replicate what they did last year, and if Carson Wentz can come back to that 2017 form.
0: Or even... Perhaps his, his 2019 form where he gave you 27-7. and seven. That's still, with that defense, that's good enough to, in theory, make a fairly deep playoff run, although it was not necessarily prime wins.
1: Yeah, we'll have to see how it shakes out. The Colts are definitely uh, in the running to be in the playoffs. Potential contenders. But if you get to the playoffs, anything can happen. So that's all you got to do. Get to the playoffs and see what happens.
0: And just wh- a couple more points before we move on from this. It it is worth saying that Rhodes, Houston, and Hooker are all free agents, and so conceivably all three of them could leave, and if so, Indy would have to replace their production with somebody else. And it's also very interesting that Indy's defense somewhat faded down the stretch. Mm. The first nine games, they allowed 108.9 yards per game average and an average passer rating of 78.9, which, as we alluded to before, is well below league average. But over the final seven games, that ballooned to 297 yards per game and a 102.5 passer rating. And so that's obviously due to multiple reasons, whether that's strength of schedule or the natural ebbs and flows that a team might experience. And we don't have enough time to get into that tonight, but it is worth mentioning that if... Indiana's or rather Indianapolis's defense fluctuates, it might place additional mental pressure on Carson Wentz to step his game up in that situation and it remains to be seen how well he can do that. Yeah, we will have to see. Absolutely. Now, moving on, there was a, another big signing in the NFL recently. Albeit this was not a trade, it was a free uh, it was a free agent signing, but it involves of course three-time NFL Defensive Player of the Year, J.J. Watt, who has left his longtime home, uh, his nine-season home, the Houston Texans, to go to the Arizona Cardinals. Tyson, give me your initial thoughts on
1: that. Wow. Was not expecting that one. Uh, A lot of people speculated that J.J. Watt was going to join up with his brother in Pittsburgh, potentially go to Green Bay because he played his university ball in Wisconsin. Uh, There was a lot of different... Type of uh, rumors going around about J.J. Watt. None of them included Arizona. So this was really out of left field. So when we look at the contract specifically, two years, 31 million, 23 million guaranteed for J.J. Watt. That's a big dollar figure and it's tough to turn down that kind of money. So I don't blame J.J. Watt for taking maybe one of the bigger contracts that was on the table. I don't know how many different contracts or what the different dollars were for every team, but J.J. Watt, he's getting well paid now in Arizona, and I can't help but think that uh, DeAndre Hopkins being in Arizona definitely influenced J.J. Watt's decision to go to the desert. Absolutely. DeAndre Hopkins, a top five wide
0: receiver in the NFL and J.J. Watt's old teammate for all those years. Certainly, you know, we don't have access to their text message history, but we can (laughs) assume that some interesting conversations were had. Now, as you said, two years, $31 million with $23 million guaranteed. It's a lot of money, and you know, much like Carson Wentz, Watt has suffered a lot of injuries, particularly with his back. Mm. Uh, if he's not, if I'm not mistaken, he's missed 32 games over the last five seasons, which in the NFL we have 16 game seasons, so that's a significant amount of time mm-hmm. off the table. And again, he's getting he's getting older. As well, He's 31, and so it's reasonable to expect that he is not going to be, probably, he's probably not going to be the alpha player that he once was. But when, on the other hand, you go to a team like Arizona, who's got another all-pro pass rusher in Chandler Jones, and this is a team that tied for fourth with 48 sacks last year, with all of that pass rush heat, JJ should have his fair share at single blocks.
1: Absolutely, and the question about J.J. Watt for many, many years in Houston was not if he was going to be dominant, because we know that he's a great player. It's if he's going to be healthy. Like you said, missed 32 games. Well, that's two out of five seasons that he's missed due to injuries collectively as a total. That's a lot. (laughs) So if we can get a healthy J.J. Watt Back in the NFL, I think it's only good for the Arizona Cardinals to get that on their defense. Any team could benefit with a player like J.J. Watt coming off the edge and wreaking havoc in both the run game and the pass game because he's just so good. But the question is, is what does he have left in the tank in terms of games played health-wise, and how effective can he be for those games? Is he still limited by some of those injuries? Absolutely. Now, it is worth noting that when
0: he was in Houston last year, J.J. had just five sacks and 17 quarterback hits. And again, if you don't follow football, a 10-sack season is more or less the benchmark for a great-to-elite pass rusher. You are going to be able to get double-digit sacks if you are one of the premier players playing that role. But he was also the NFL's most double-teamed Edge rusher because frankly, Houston did not have a very good defense. Now, as we said before, with Chandler Jones coming off the other edge, that's probably not going to happen.
1: No, it's probably not. You're going to see a lot more of a balanced line, not many double teams with the Cardinals. Of course, it depends on how uh, healthy Chandler Jones and JJ Watt are. But when they're both healthy and both coming off of either edge, lining up in various formations, it'll be a nightmare for offenses to try and figure out. Who's coming from where, how do you get it blocked up right, and who do you want single coverage or single one-on-one blocking with uh, J.J. Watt or Chandler Jones, because those are two guys that can potentially wreak havoc and get three, four sacks a game and absolutely change the dynamic just based off of their defense. So this is something that will definitely really impact the NFC West as a division, as it looks like there's a little bit of an arms race going on mm-hmm. over there in that division. And, yeah, the Colts, or sorry, not the Colts, the Cardinals are definitely uh, looking to take strides and get better. Ah, And one more thing, you know, much like Carson Wentz, J.J.
0: Watt is a phenomenal human being off the field, in oh. the locker room, in the community. Absolutely. $37 million raised to help Houston recover from Hurricane Harvey a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you know what? What a lot of people may not know is, in addition to that, he offered to pay for the funerals of the dead in the in the May 2018 Santa Fe high school shooting Mm -hmm. as well. Ten people tragically lost their lives that day, and Watt offered to pay for the funerals of the dead. This is a man that also went on record, and you know, one of the interviews I remember listening to just uh, a few weeks ago was him saying, calling out his team and saying, "Hey, you get to go out there and play a game." And so if you're not willing to work hard and take advantage of that privilege, then you don't belong here. He's a man with an elite work ethic, a humble heart, a very down-to-earth person by all indications, and that will certainly help those younger Arizona players like, for example, quarterback, Kyler Murray, learn how
1: to do things the right way. Absolutely. His intensity and work ethic are unquestioned. He is an animal when it comes to practice, when it comes to the weight room, And when it comes to doing things the right way, J.J. Watt has done exceptional work off the field. He even helped with some COVID relief when things were going bad in Texas there for a little bit last year. So J.J. Watt uh, really has done a lot of good for the city of Houston, and they love him for good reason. Uh, Not many people know this, but you and I know. The Walter Payton Man of the Year Award is given to the NFL player who made the greatest impact off the field in terms of humanitarian efforts of some kind whether that's charity donations or or some other type of thing. J.J. Watt is a winner of the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award and for those winners they get to wear a little emblem on their jersey and it goes with them wherever they go. And not only that but most of the players in the league will tell
0: you that that award is in some ways it's more valuable than a Lombardi trophy or an MVP that's how much that award is or rather that trophy is respected by the players who are committed to doing things uh, you know in a way that benefits not only
1: themselves and the team but the community as well absolutely and JJ Watt you know he's a class act he, he knows that football comes second to real life and I think that that's important to know and that's important to aware And, you know, I can't say enough good things about J.J. Watt. Uh, It's unfortunate that, you know, his time in Houston kind of had to come to an end. But hopefully he can have a wonderful career in Arizona that could potentially lead to them winning a lot of games. Absolutely. Now, before we move on to
0: our next sport, we unfortunately Mm -hmm. need to pay tribute to a couple of uh, former NFL players that are no longer with us. Why don't you go first on that?
1: Yeah, so it's really sad. I want to say that uh, it's never good to to hear any of this stuff come in the news, and and David and I feel especially so that we just feel like we need to to talk about this a little bit. Um, On Saturday, a former NFL player named Louis Nix was uh, found, passed away, and uh, I just wanted to talk a little bit about him and And share a little bit about his life and uh yeah and his football career he he played at notre dame he was a defensive tackle he famously wore number one on that defensive line and uh on the notre dame fighting irish tribute for for lewis nix's uh, life they showed a highlight of the 330 pound defensive tackle wearing number one lining up as a quarterback and running the wildcat qb draw for a touchdown and it was so loving and he was such a fun-loving guy he was given the nickname irish chocolate while he was in uh, notre dame he's the third round pick of the houston texans he spent time with the texans the giants washington and the jaguars during his in uh, nfl career and uh, sadly he is he's no longer with us at the yeah. age of 29 so our thoughts and prayers are, are with the family and friends of Lewis Nix, and yeah, we'll we'll be praying for you guys.
0: Yeah, for sure. And unfortunately, there's a there's a there's a second one uh, coming your way, guys. Uh, this one happened a bit earlier. It happened in mid-February, around the 16th, where another former NFL player, wide receiver Vincent Jackson, was found deceased in a Florida hotel room. He was 38 years old at the time, and initial reports found no apparent signs of trauma and the the cause of death is yet to be revealed but Jackson you know for a lot of years he was a a fixture on that Tampa Bay Buccaneers offense this year's champions obviously he retired before this year before Tom Brady came but nonetheless a three-time pro bowler He played from 2005 to 2016 big physical receiver and what, what's sad about that is just days before he was found dead the police found him in his hotel room and they talked to him and a missing persons report that his family had filed was canceled after they determined that he was okay and so right now we don't know what happened mm. we may not ever get to know for sure but it's another person that we offer you know we offer our condolences to his loved ones yeah for sure now with that being said, We must now move on to our second major topic uh, of the day. and That is, of course, switching gears to the NBA. And Mm -hmm. specifically, the North Toronto Raptors, that is.
1: We the North.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Tampa's temporary, of course. (laughs) Anyways, uh, the the Toronto Raptors. They're 17 and 17 so far this season. Power rankings from ESPN and The Athletic both have them listed as the number 13 team for this particular week um and they've had an interesting week they lost to the Sixers a very good team they mm-hmm. lost to the Heat who made the finals last year they stomped a backsliding Houston Rockets team that is in serious trouble mm-hmm. right now absolutely and they had a bunch of games postponed due to COVID-19 protocols mm-hmm. so Tyson what do you see out of them so far this season
1: yeah here are my thoughts about the Raptors it's been a tough transition from going from Toronto to Tampa you know I don't think people really recognize the difference that these players have to go to they're leaving their homes behind so that way they can live in Tampa for a year essentially maybe less than that so it's really different being in Tampa and being away from your home home stadium essentially so the Raptors, when you look at the stats, they're 8-7 and seven for their home games, which is second worst among playoff qualifying teams right now. But go figure, it's not actually their home. It's not actually their home. So when you look at it, it's really tough to analyze how they're doing at home. And in fact, when you look at it, the Raptors are better on the road. They average 15, 115 points per game on the road compared to 110 at home. So this is something that... I don't think I recognized as a Raptors fan going into the season was going to be this tough, was transitioning to this new arena. And when you really think about it, the Raptors players, are the, and the Raptors as a team, they're the only ones that have to play 72 road games because they're going to be playing all of their games in an unfamiliar arena. Yeah,
0: and unfortunately things don't help when one of your notable free agent signings doesn't pan out the way you had hoped. We are talking, of course, about the Australian center Aaron Baines, who mm. had, he was coming off a career year at 33 years of age with the Phoenix Suns. He was averaging 11.5 points per game to go with 5.6 rebounds per game. On one, In one particular context, you know, he really, he really made some noise. I think it was, Yes, it was on the 6th of March last year, 37 points, including nine three-pointers. Nine? S- nine three-pointers for a big man that's made his living in the paint. Wow. 16 rebounds to go with it as the Phoenix Suns beat the Portland Trailblazers 127-117. Now, obviously, no one expected that he would suddenly turn into Hakeem Olajuwon <laughs> when Toronto signed him, but nonetheless... You know, when you look at social media, you look at YouTube right around the time of the uh, the signing, uh, late November, early December, there was a lot of buzz around this Aaron Baines acquisition. And people were optimistic that he could become a solid starting piece if he even kept a little bit of that new shooting stroke. If he could average, I don't know, if he could average maybe 10, 15 points Seven to nine rebounds, perhaps, and be and still bring that gritty, powerful Aaron Baines defense. People were optimistic about him. Has he still brought the gritty Aaron Baines defense? Yes, but as we're about to discuss next, that's kind of all he brought to Toronto.
1: Yeah, that's kind of it. You know, when we look at the off as Raptors fans, we were looking at maybe bringing back Gasol, in which he Mark was, Gasol, yeah, Mark Gasol, who was a part of that championship winning team. Unfortunately, Gasol was thinking about retiring and going back and playing in the Spanish League because he's Spanish. But eventually, Marc Gasol decided he was going to sign in L.A. with the Lakers. So then our attentions turned to Serge Ibaka, who was also on that championship team. And Serge Ibaka eventually decided to join forces with Kawhi Leonard in Los Angeles with the Clippers. So when we look at the Raptors and we look at Aaron Baines, We looked at him as kind of a consolation prize, if you will. We understood that Aaron Baines was not going to be as good defensively as Marc Gasol. We also understood that he wasn't going to be as athletic or maybe shoot as good from three as Serge Ibaka. But we were hoping for something kind of like that. Maybe a little bit uh, of, of Gasol and a little bit from Ibaka and kind of mix the two and have... A player who could fill into that kind of starting center role and eat 30 minutes a night if he really had to.
0: Right, and unfortunately that just hasn't been the case so far. Now I just want to say for again those of you who might be unfamiliar with basketball, you know Marcus Saul won NBA Defensive Player of the Year in 2013. <laughs> that was also the year he made the NBA All-Defensive second team and You know, it's true that Aaron Baines is a big, physical, gritty player. He will contest any shot. He does not afraid. Sorry, he is not afraid of being posterized. He doesn't care. And when he plays another big, he plays him hard and plays him tough. The issue is he has never had Marc Gasol's defensive IQ. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I saw on on social media, on Twitter, on YouTube, there was maybe some fans that were getting a little bit carried away and thinking that Baines could replicate Gasol's defense to a great extent that was overly optimistic at best but nonetheless as we're about to talk as we're about to talk about it's not really the defense that's an issue with baines because as we said he he can still bring that the issue is tyson that a, a two, couple of short weeks ago he was shooting 42% on layups
1: oh well oh. that is just not good enough you can't 42% on layups like that's not good it really isn't like On a good day, Steph Curry can hit 42 from three. No, on a good day, Steph Curry can hit like 52 from three. (laughs) Probably, right? So when we're thinking about layups, layups are almost gimmies. You know, like really close to the basket. Most players can hit around 70 to 80% on layups and dunks. And that's not what Aaron Baines is at. He's really not. And I think that's been something that has been really disappointing with Aaron Baines is that he hasn't been able to provide that offensive punch that the Raptors have needed at the center position to really help support some of their guards like Fred Van Leet and Kyle Lowry and Norman Powell because, you know, Kyle Lowry's been in and out of the lineup with injuries and so is OG Ananobi. So that depth has really been tested a lot for the Raptors Uh, in terms of their guards and forward play and that center position has been for the most part underwhelming and that's because of Aaron Baines's lack of production offensively and in some ways also defensively and here's here's a hot quote for you in mid-february Fred VanVleet was
0: asked if a small lineup might be the answer for the Toronto Raptors and a small lineup meeting no traditional center, someone like Pascal Siakam, a traditional power forward starting at center. Fred VanVleet said, it better be we don't have a choice at this point. No, oh. That does not exactly aspire confidence in your starting center, Baines. But frankly, as we've just been talking about, you know, who can blame him? It's not just the statistics. If you watch Baines, he is struggling to hit hook shots and layups and post-fades quite visibly uh, when he gets the ball on the offensive end. And given the fact that Nick Nurse loves to use the pick and roll, that one five, one four screen and roll type action, when you have your starting center who is unable to reliably hit even close, lightly contested shots, it essentially neutralizes that tactic by telling the defense to key in on the guard
1: because in that situation, the guard is the only viable offensive threat. Absolutely it really makes defending easy when you don't have to account for a player right and that's something that nba players are starting to understand and nba schemes and coaches are starting to understand as we go forward there's going to be a lot less what we call positionless basketball where we're going oh, to have... you mean a lot
0: more positionless oh, sorry, basketball? a lot more
1: positionless basketball excuse me where they're gonna be a lot more players that are traditionally like four power forward type positions handling the ball, like Giannis Antetokounmpo, the reigning MVP. Or there's gonna be kind of this interesting small lineup that the Warriors did for years where they had Draymond Green, who is 6'8", six, six, ish, at the center position. And they're using five players who are exceptionally skilled at passing the ball to drive and find the open player for a good shot so when we look at that situation in terms of the Raptors if you have a player that is not offensively viable it means that you're playing four on five essentially on the offensive side of the ball and that does not translate to winning basketball are you sure no I'm just
0: kidding <laughs> <laughs> obviously you know it doesn't look good for Baines on the offensive end but we do want to of course point out what he is still good at Uh, You know, like I said, we're not here to take just free shots at a guy. So, you know, what does he still do well? Like I said, the defense, also screens. For all of his offensive deficiencies, Aaron Baines is 260 pounds of bearded Australian. And he is (laughs) strong, and he is hard to move, and he can absolutely roadblock, especially perimeter defenders, when he stands there, sets a screen and opens one of the Raptors ball handlers up for a shot or a drive or a pass. Obviously, like we said, that quality by itself is just not enough to make up for his other offensive deficiencies. The other thing that he can do, and frankly, this is the role that we both see Baines playing in the foreseeable future, is essentially a bench center that comes in to provide grit and energy and especially, pardon me, to match up against opposing bigs what am i talking about well i'm talking about in particular a game against sorry not the game that they played against uh sorry it's not coming to me philadelphia Phil- philadelphia yeah so earlier uh, in late february aaron baines did play 30 minutes against the philadelphia 76ers and you know what he held joel Embiid. To 6 of 20 from the floor. Now, why is this especially significant? First of all, Joel Embiid is one of the best centers in the league who is capable of 30 any night. Any night. Any night. But he was also coming off a 50-point game against the Chicago Bulls. And Aaron Baines played starter minutes that night, Mm -hmm. and he held him to 6 of 20 from the floor. And, you know, I watched that game, Tyson, and I realized that when Aaron Baines was on the floor... Right away, they went away from starting Pascal Siakam because when Siakam was starting at center, Joel Embiid was starting to have his way. And when they put in Baines, there were entire stretches of the game where Embiid would barely get the basketball and they would try to run the offense through somebody else. And when he did get the ball, Baines was extremely physical with him, contested his shots, contested his post-up, his post-up opportunities, and essentially limited... MB to 24 total points, but a lot of that came on free throws in the second half. So perhaps against teams with dominant bigs that like to play
1: down low, Baines can still be an asset. Absolutely. You know, Baines can be an asset in those situations, but I think, again, we need to remember what Aaron Baines truly is. I think that the idea that Aaron Baines can be a starting center every night, plug him in. And hope that he can hold his own and provide offense that that idea is no longer viable that ship is sailed so what is Aaron Baines at 34 years old Aaron Baines can provide good defense against a big center and he can provide good rebounding and he can set screens and be a part of an offensive scheme where he doesn't have to shoot the basketball very much and can kind of get rebounds and kick out and that type of offense. So if we can use Aaron Baines in those ways, we can have success, and Aaron Baines can have success. But we need to redefine what it looks like for Aaron Baines to have success on the Raptors team as it consists consists right now because the idea that Aaron Baines can be a matchup with anybody and have some offensive output and shoot some threes like he did with the Suns it's not realistic anymore, and I think we need to understand that.
0: For sure. Now, the silver lining for the Raptors comes, of course, in the form of Chris Boucher out of Montreal, a a very uh, Kevin Durant looking player, shall (laughs) we say. Six foot 10, just 200 pounds, but you know what? He has really emerged as a viable stretch five in this league, averaging 13 points per game. He's also become a surprisingly good rim protector uh, Defensively, I don't think anybody would have expected this from Boucher just two years ago, but you know what? He's averaging 0.95 blocks on specifically three-pointers per 100 Mm -hmm. possessions. He's a good defender overall, but he's blocking three-point shots at a historic rate, the highest rate, in fact, since the 2000-2001 season. Wow. So he's clearly using his seven-foot-four wingspan and his energy and his developing basketball IQ to make the right play on both ends of the floor.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Boucher has definitely been a fresh breath of air for the Raptors. We have to temper our expectations a little bit because, like you said, 6'10", 200 pounds... And when you look at him, he doesn't look like he's 200 pounds. He kind of looks like he's less than 200 pounds. He's very um, not as built. Not at all, really. (laughs) as, As some of the other NBA players. But we need to remember what Chris Boucher is. And he's an athletic big who brings a lot of things to the table. But strength is not necessarily going to be one of those things.
0: And so really what we hope is we could clone, or rather we could splice Chris Boucher and Aaron Baines into a single person, if you're a Raptors fan, and then duplicate that guy so we can have essentially two centers. But obviously that's not going to happen. (laughs) So as much as we may wish otherwise. But what we can do, obviously, as the Raptors is look outside to see what some of the free agent offerings are at center. Because as we've been saying, Mm -hmm. the Raptors have a need in this area because both of the starting centers, or rather, sorry, both of their main centers have obvious deficiencies that need to be addressed for this team to take a step forward. But unfortunately, if we were to take a look at some of the biggest name available centers, Steven Adams, Andre Drummond, Al Horford, Nikola Vucevic, and LaMarcus Aldridge... The cheapest one of those guys is Aldridge at $24 million this year. And so, you know, all those guys bring size, rebounding, especially strength in terms of Adams and Drummond. But they're just probably not going to be affordable, realistic options by the trade deadline. So
1: with that being said, is
0: there anyone else you're keeping your eye on that, you know, maybe potentially
1: we could take a run at? You know, this may be a little bit of pie in the sky and hopes and dreams, but an option that I really, really like is Jonas Valanciunas.
0: Or, uh, as he was once known by Charles Barkley, Jonas Valsu Inawasas. It's been seven years and I will not let anyone forget that.
1: Oh man, that's such a bad butcher of his name. I feel so bad. I'm sorry, JB. (laughs) But yeah, so Jonas Valanciunas, he's playing for the Memphis Grizzlies, former Raptor. He's on a contract that pays him $15 million per year, which is roughly around uh, what Aaron Baines makes. I think Aaron Baines makes a little bit less. But Jonas Valanciunas, former Raptor, he's kind of at that sweet spot of about 265 uh, pounds, 7-footer. He can rim protect he's big he's strong he's filled out his frame from when he was a raptor beforehand and he can eat minutes as a top center and he can be a starting player and he has that unique ability to step away and shoot the ball a little bit occasionally occasionally uh Jonas Valanciunas can hit 78 percent 80 percent on his free throws which means that which is better than LeBron first of all absolutely it is (laughs) <laughs> and according to Skip Bayless, that's all that matters in order to the GOAT debate. But that's anyways. So with Jonas Valanciunas, that would be kind of the ideal player for the Raptors kind of at this point in time, bringing in a center who can not only match up against some of the bigger players, some of the Joel Embiid's, Rudy Gobert's of the NBA, but can also have that soft skill that can get them. You know, 20 points a game sometimes. For sure, or even 10. Even 10, which is something that Aaron Baines cannot provide.
0: And of of course, he's a fan favorite who knows the organization, so if he were to return, it should be a fairly easy transition period for him, but obviously, deadline's not here yet, and we can only see what turns out, or even whether or not Boucher or Baines could take a step forward in the second half of the season and continue to give the Raptors more consistent production at that center spot now with that being said it's now time for us to transition to our final topic of the evening which of course is the nhl and within the nhl we have a very dark and seedy situation developing with new york rangers forward artemi panarin coming off a career year he is now on a leave of absence and it's not because of covid
1: no no it's really not. And this is a really sad and difficult situation for really anybody to go to. This is really unfortunate, really, for anybody to go through this. And uh, he's taking a leave of absence because of something that has come up in Russia. So there was an allegation that came forth that uh, Artemi Panarin beat up an 18-year-old girl in Latvia outside of a bar. That is what the allegation says. The Russian tabloid was the one who wrote this story. Now, this allegation is not coming from the victim. That means it's a lot more messy than what we initially anticipated. The victim of this uh, situation has not spoken, has not come forward. So at this point in time, it's really difficult to kind of get an assessment and understanding about if this happened what actually did happen because the russian tabloid writes the article that you know Panarin allegedly beat up this 18 year old girl and the tabloid cites Panarin's former head coach Andre Nazarov who or Nazarov who heard the story from a former teammate of Panarin's Mikhail Anisen now the paper says that Anisen is supposed to be believed because Anisen was supposedly only drinking juice that night. The problem is is that there's video of Mikhail Anisen starting drunken fights at the bar. So this is kind of a little bit of an inconsistency here. Now there's also uh, a little bit of an inconsistency going on because bars aren't really open in Riga, Latvia. So, and this alleged story happened on a Sunday, apparently. So that also makes it a little bit confusing. Also, the date that the alleged incident happened was days before their next game in Latvia. So it seems weird that the team would fly out multiple days in advance before their next game and then just staying the town that they were in. It would be the equivalent of the Tampa Bay Lightning choosing to leave sunny Florida and going to Minnesota and hanging out in Minnesota hotels for three days before playing the game in Minnesota so it doesn't really make sense so it's a little bit of a weird situation that's going on right now there's a little bit of a, a, a information gap where there isn't fully a full story there isn't uh, necessarily one story that makes sense that kind of everything lines up it's much more messy than that now we need to understand a little bit of the context that's also going on around here. Artemi Panarin is an outspoken supporter of Alexei Navalny. Now, if you don't know who Alexei Navalny is, is that Navalny is a political rival of Vladimir Putin. And A great
0: career path. Just
1: kidding. <laughs> a great career path. And, you know, Navalny, his wife has fled Russia for safety reasons. And Navalny has... Uh, recently been thrown in jail again, so there are some political ties to this in that, you know, there's a possibility here that there could be some political pullings here towards the Artemi Panarin situation. So, when the KHL, it's it's not uncommon for some of the KHL teams to be state owned, and for example, SKA Saint Petersburg is one of the more popular KHL teams. SKA St. Petersburg is owned by uh, Gazprom Export Group. Now, I believe that Gazprom is state-owned, which means that it is owned by the government, in which the CEO is Alexei Miller, who was the Minister for Foreign Relations under Vladimir Putin Mm. and is currently the Minister of Energy for the Russian Federation, also working under Vladimir Putin. So when we can look at this, it would be very beneficial for a coach who wants to get a job in the KHL to be pro-Putin. It makes sense. And when we look at Nazarov as a person, there have been previous reports by uh, some reporters in the KHL that report that this man is mentally unstable. Great. after having outbursts behind the bench in Russia, in the KHL. And Nazarov has also been on the record saying that anyone who has outspoken against Russia should be in jail. Mm. So that's kind of the situation that is being portrayed out here in Russia, in the KHL, with Artemi Panarin. And it po- it's, it's possible, like, the most juicy story is that we have Vladimir Putin hanging out at his office going, yes, I want to ruin Artemi Panarin's career because he's outspoken against me and I'm going to tell this head coach to say something about him. But Very it, Tom Clancy. Very Yes, yes. But in reality it could be that Nazarov just said those things because he wanted to. <laughs> right.
0: Well, you know, I just want to take this moment to say though that And to reinforce that this is a very shady, hazy situation, Mm -hmm. in no way are we trying to necessarily exclude the possibility that Artemi was guilty of these things back in 2011. And as we know, there are a lot of factors that could prevent someone from coming forward and reporting abuse, but we are just going to have to wait and see. And I do want to thank you for looking into this for us, Tyson, because the political angle You know, even if it is a little bit far-fetched in the end, it is an interesting context, and if nothing else, it's a good reminder of how different other parts of the world are politically, uh, as opposed to us here in North America, and how that affects all aspects of life,
1: including sport. Absolutely, and you know, there are stories about how, uh, there have been tweets on Twitter about how there are people that are supporting Alexei Navalny in this crisis, and there's an NHL player named Alexander Radulov who uh, plays in the mm. NHL for, the, I believe, the Dallas Stars. He right does. Now. And uh, Alexander Radulov uh, clicked like on one of those tweets, and then he clicked unlike. Because you can't even click like on those tweets. Because uh, Panarin right now in a situ- is in a situation where he has family in Russia. And some of his actions here in, the, in North America could affect his family in Russia, living under Vladimir Putin. So this is a very messy situation. And we want to be in a place where we can say, yes, we want to believe victims, and we want to do the necessary due diligence, and we want to understand the the story and what's going on and what really happened in this situation. Uh, right now, unfortunately, there's just not enough information right now. And uh, it's really difficult because this is a messy situation and this is a messy situation that requires a follow-up you know for sure we need to we need to know what happened here Uh, if artemi panarin did allegedly you know beat this girl up there needs to be consequences for for that absolutely but we also don't want to uh, you know make him guilty without actually no. knowing what actually happened
0: although like you said this seems like it may be a, a fair bit more hazy than something like the Slavovoyanov domestic abuse mm-hmm. incident years ago when he was when he essentially did lose his job in the NHL and but in any case you know let's finish just by taking a look at who who Artemi Panarin is as a player, and what the Rangers are missing without him. He's 29 years old. Mm -hmm. Last year, he scored 95 points Mm -hmm. in just 69 games because of the COVID lockout. 32 goals, 63 assists which tied him for third total in the nhl mm-hmm. he was a finalist in heart trophy voting as the nhl mvp and he's in the second season of a seven-year 81.5 million dollar contract he signed with the rangers in july of 2019 now tongue-in-cheek it's a lot less money than some of his uh, nfl and nba compatriots would be making but you know that's just The nature of the beast but nonetheless both the nhl and rangers coach david quinn have voiced their support of panarin and they have voiced that they are going to continue to monitor the situation and so obviously on the ice the rangers are going to have to make do without arguably their best player offensively and off the ice we can only wait and see what happens next
1: yeah absolutely and it's been a tough season for the rangers i think after having You know, Panarin sign and Mika Zibanejad is looking really good for the Rangers at center. And they have Alexi Lafreniere and Capo Caco, two young, really good players, high draft picks. They were expecting a lot more out of this season than what they're getting. And for the Rangers, particularly, they've had some troubles with their players, specifically even troubles with abuse within their locker room. Uh, In the Tony D'Angelo situation that maybe we'll get to in another podcast, But it's been a really difficult season for the New York Rangers this year. And Artemi Panarin is one of those things that it's really difficult to go through. And we'll have to wait and see because ultimately at this point in time, we don't really know. For sure. Well, anyways, Tyson, that concludes our first
0: podcast here on the draft board. And if you guys made it to the end, uh, thank you. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you. You probably had a bunch of free time on your hands today, <laughs> but you know what? In any case, th- this has been a pleasure to be with you, and we look forward to doing this a lot in the weeks and months and even years to come. Now, mm-hmm. if you are listening, and you want to, if you are listening and you want to give us any feedback, uh, there's definitely ways for you, for you to do that. Uh, you know, our, our our social media page. Admittedly, it's in the works, but we're looking to get that up and running as soon as possible. And, you know, we look forward to having much more of these conversations that hopefully you guys can enjoy and be a part of. And so with that said, for Tyson Workington, my name is David Song, and we're signing off from the draft.